When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. This is Pam Shriver. This is Yannick Noah. Hello, this is Stephen from Adelaide in Australia. You're listening to the Fantastic Tennis Podcast. Well, thank you very much, Stephen, for introducing this edition of the Tennis Podcast. Stephen in Adelaide. Matt, Adelaide, whenever I think of that particular city, I always think of Leighton Hewitt winning his first ATP title in 1998 as a 16-year-old beating Andre Agassi in the semifinals and Jason Stoltenberg, who would one day become his coach in the final. And uh, Stephen just has that kind of very relaxed kind of delivery that makes me think Australia. And that's where we're going to be in a couple of months' time. Thank you, Stephen. What a lovely intro. Yeah, it's a very soothing voice that Stephen has. I wish I had a you know similar tennis anecdote to associate with Adelaide. I think of... Alistair Cook in the Ashes having a great having a great innings there for England once, but uh, yeah, Australia always makes me think of tennis. Yeah, well, and we can't wait to go. I, I've actually been looking at our Airbnb accommodation today online <laughs> ju- just to sort of drool about going. <laughs> so uh, yes, we, we've successfully been wetting our appetite for that. But at the moment, we're watching indoor tennis because this week has been the ATP finals in Turin in Italy and uh, they are through the group stages. It's finally got there, Matt. And uh, we haven't done a podcast in uh, quite a few days now since you got back from Glasgow. Um but it feels like a it feels like a really long time. The the uh, the group stages and in this particular tournament they do go on for a bit and they pack it in. Am I right in saying that they used to have singles only at the ATP finals and the doubles was was it held somewhere else or in a different week or something? I'm, I'm sure you can explain. And they used to have three singles matches a day and the whole event would move a bit quicker. It's obviously been. Mm been a real move to showcase doubles I suppose which you know which is probably a good thing really but yeah it does it does mean that sometimes that round robin phase can really can really drag a little bit yeah yeah well if I think back to my days of working on the ATP circuit as a communications manager back in the 90s which is the only tennis knowledge that I really have that's reliable um 
they used to, as you say, just have the singles and therefore they, they did away with the tram lines, just like they did at the next mm. gen finals recently. Um, and it's, it's quite a strange visual, I think on the eye, but, in, but I also do like it. Um, and, uh, what they would do with the the doubles, I mean, I think to be honest, it was year to year. They they tried to have a, a doubles only kind of finals tournament. I remember, I think it was in Hartford in in America a few years, but it it struggled. I think it struggled to stand on its own. And uh, certainly when they put them together in in London at the O2, I, I think that that was a, a great move, and I think that it really does work. Um, always worked in london because they got great crowds anyway and they could use it as a kind of an appetizer for the main course of the singles and people would come through the doors they'd come early and they'd often get immersed in a really great match and i think it does work um so i I like the format i mean you know we've talked long and hard about round robin (laughs) tennis the the various irritations i have with it but we we obviously saw some of its merits last week in the Billie jean king cup finals and the kind of drama that associated it there but i think just generally as a week of tennis this is where i really start to love it now that it goes knockout but it has been a good week overall i think what do you what do you think yeah i think so and Second edition in Turin, it seems to have been really well attended again. There's a great buzz in that stadium, I think. And it's been quite surprising in a way. You know, if we if we look at the singles semi-final lineup, I might have picked two of them, but I certainly don't think I would have picked Andre Rublev. And I'm not sure I would have picked Kaspar Ruud either. I think Djokovic and Fritz were the ones that I thought were in form and, and playing well. So there's, there's you know, lots for us to get into, I think, as well. Yeah, there is. There is indeed. But, but before we do that, <laughs> I think we need to hear from the person who is there. The tennis podcast uh, member of the team, Catherine Whitaker, who is on site in Turin, presenting the coverage of Amazon Prime Video in the UK, doing a fantastic job as well. And uh, she really wanted to be on this show tonight with us talking right now. But... Then Andre Rublev went and levelled up at one said all, and now it's well after midnight, and she's got to be in again for uh, 11 o'clock in the morning. So it's a really early wake-up call for Catherine. So she does intend to join us in person uh, or on the Zoom live in the next couple of days because we're going to have live shows for you tomorrow and on Sunday, and then we're going to be daily all the way through the Davis Cup finals with Matt in Malaga. But Catherine has sent us a voice note. And it's a good one, folks. So we're going to play that for you here. I I did ask just before Catherine signed off for the night, where were you when you recorded this? Just so that I can give the listeners some context. And she said, I was outside the toilets in the hotel. So I rather wish I hadn't asked. But uh, anyway, that was was where Catherine uh, recorded this voice note, giving her view of what she's seen and enjoyed over the past week. Hello folks, uh, this is Catherine reporting from Turin or Torino uh, where I have learnt many Italian words this week like stupenda and splendida. It's been uh, quite a week. Uh, we've just finished the uh, round robin stage of proceedings and uh, what have we got? We've got Djokovic against Fritz in the semi-finals, which was made 
far more interesting a prospect by the three hours and 11 minutes that Novak Djokovic expended on court today um, against Daniel Medvedev in what was to all intents and purposes a dead rubber. Um, Look, I am all here for players playing dead rubbers like that. Dead rubbers are pretty much the worst thing about round robin tennis. In fact, not pretty much. Round robins are a are a really rubbish byproduct of round robin tennis. Um, and the way Rafael Nadal played his yesterday and Djokovic played his today is an absolute testament to both of them. Uh, but they were each in very different situations. Rafael Nadal had lost four matches on the bounce, knew that his season was ending, wanted to finish it on a high um, and didn't have much to lose. Novak Djokovic has a very big semi-final to play in less than 24 hours after he finished that match. He knew going on court that he would be the afternoon session match, the afternoon session semi-final, because it's it's simply unfair to put the uh, winner of the match that was played tonight, the Sitsipas-Riblev match, on the earlier semi-final tomorrow. So, yeah, I mean, very admirable effort from Djokovic. He was, I mean, the bloke was close to passing out on the court. His hand was physically shaking at the end of the the second set that he lost to Medvedev. And I was, you know, I had my ears in, I was holding the mic, had my earpieces in, holding the mic, just assuming there'd be a retirement or failing that, a tank in the third set. And then (laughs) there he is throwing himself around, hobbling around the court while Medvedev is failing to close it out. I think 5-4 he served for it. And then suddenly Djokovic is winning it in a deciding set tiebreak. And (laughs) I found it thoroughly bizarre. Um, I'm sure this will all go quickly out of date when he thrashes Taylor Fritz 6-2, 6-1. But um, maybe he won't. Maybe he'll be knackered. I don't know. I certainly think Taylor Fritz has looked extremely smooth this week I've been very impressed with him I do think the court suits him extremely well um, it's a bit of a service paradise um, his backhand has looked brilliant just like it did in uh, in Indian Wells and his forehand is, is still up to scrutiny pretty well as well um, it was such a contrast for me the match he played against Felix Auger-Aliassime last night that one was a, a winner-take-all match um, for semi-final qualification from the green group and <sighs> there's so much to admire about Felix Auger-Aliassime and I, I so want to be a member of his fan club and in lots of ways I am you know what he represents what a nice guy he is how sporting he is how hard-working he is but There is a bit of a disconnect for me while watching him. I I can find him a slightly arduous watch. And that was highlighted for me by the matchup with Taylor Fritz, who's so, so loose-limbed and free-looking. My dad compared him to Gustavo Quirton physically earlier this week. And I think that's a, a good comparison, you know, very lithe and sort of knobbly almost. Um, and there you've got him up against uh, Felix Auger-Liassime, who's just, you know, he's this sort of factory-made tennis player, isn't he? He's the perfect physique, and yet there's something so <sighs> manufactured-looking about him, you know? It's methodical and regimented, and it looks so stiff against Taylor Fritz. 
um, your eye was drawn to the fritz end of the court and that looseness I think really really helped him yesterday and yeah, I really enjoyed watching Taylor Fritz this week. I absolutely loved watching Andre Rublev tonight. Um, you know, he's he's just, a, I said this on air for Prime Video just a few minutes ago with Greg Zetsky, he's just a good egg, Andre Rublev. You know, we we can't underestimate that the the peace message that he wrote on the on the camera after winning his uh, winning his second match was it or first match um, peace 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 we need it you know this is this is a guy with family in Russia um, he spends a lot of time there he's pretty much the most outspoken Russian tennis player on on tour in in opposition of the war I think he's about as outspoken in opposition as a Russian with close family living in Russia is is able to be um, and you know goes without saying that he deserves tremendous credit for that and I just I just think he doesn't have any self-confidence which is crazy for a top 10 tennis player um, but I think you know his outbursts on the court I think perhaps why I have a bit more sympathy or patience with them than David does is because I can I can see that they don't come from a place of rage they come from a place of insecurity and um, lack of self-confidence you know just so hard hard on himself um, and maybe a win like tonight will will go a long way to change that you know same for that win over Andre Med- uh, whether Andre Medvedev over Danny that was like my uh getting the wrong courier wasn't it oh dear it's been a long week folks uh, just like that win over Daniel Medvedev in the um in his opening match you know he celebrated winning that like he'd won a grand slam title he fell flat on his back these um these these wins are big for Andre Rublev because his defining feature has been having a ceiling you know he's very consistent but you know, once he comes up against a player better than him, he loses. And um, but maybe he's diminishing the numbers of players there are out there that are better than him. He was certainly the better player against Stefano Sitsipas tonight, and Sitsipas I think has looked good this week overall. Certainly looked better than I've seen him for a few weeks and months. I think in the um, the match he played against Daniel Medvedev. Poor old Medvedev, everyone's whipping boys this week. Uh, boy this week. Um, there were real, I think, David, you were commenting on it in our WhatsApp group. There were real sort of philippusisms in his game. You know, you really saw the impact of it. Um, and I feel like he's trying to do the right things, but I don't know, maybe he's trying too hard. And when he got broken in the third set tonight, he was shouting at his dad and he... It all looked a bit teenage all of a sudden, and I don't know. I don't know. It's not all bad for Sitsipas for sure, but nothing that he's done recently has filled me with confidence that he is a better tennis player than he was a couple of years ago. Um, and you know, to to be the same in tennis is to is to get worse, isn't it? If you're not improving, then you're deteriorating. You can't stand still, especially not at his age and stage. You know, it should be it should be all upside. You know, in net, obviously you can have little little dips here and there, but net it should be all on the up. So 
I don't know, very interesting year coming up for him, very interesting Australian Open. Um, what else have we learned? I'm sure you'll talk a lot about Nadal and try to make predictions about his immediate future, which is just so impossible um, because, you know, as I, again, as I said on the WhatsApp group, after what I saw him do in Australia this year, I will never predict that he won't get back to his best ever again. If he did it after being on crutches last November and did it from two sets to love and a breakdown in the Australian Open final against Daniil Medvedev, I will never back him not to do it. But I say that knowing full well that one day I'll be wrong. I just don't know when that day will be. Um, I am wary of just drawing too many conclusions, if any, from his indoor hardcourt form. You know, there is a reason why in his nearly 20-year career he has never won this title. You know, he's never won it when he's been playing his absolute best. There's a reason why he's won so few titles indoors at this stage of the season. So the fact that he's not doing it at 36 and he's perhaps further, further away at 36 than he ever has been, I don't read much into that especially given the fact that he's you know recently had his first baby and all of that but it is a very critical off season coming up for Nadal that's for sure um who have I missed Daniil Medvedev looks frazzled utterly frazzled I'm starting to think the whole year has been a hangover from that Australian Open final I feel like I feel like he needs a holiday in the Maldives and I feel like he probably has the means to make that happen. So good luck, Daniil. Enjoy that. Uh, uh, Djokovic, I touched upon, you know, the match he played today, but I should say that the other two matches he played in the groups uh, against Rublev and Tsitsipas, he was utterly sublime, just mind-blowingly good. Can't believe he's able to just... <laughs> find that form and he's looked so relaxed he's had both his kids here this week the win he had against Rublev both his kids were courtside and he said afterwards to um to Richard Connolly who's been doing the ATP interviews this week and been doing a brilliant job um he said he thought that was the first match that they'd both been able to sit and watch live in its entirety and it was clear what that meant to him. Maybe it was an incentive to get the job done very quickly before they got restless. So, um, yeah, Casper Ruud. Haven't mentioned Casper Ruud, um, which is pr probably fairly illustrative, isn't it, of the fact that we're always underestimating Casper Ruud. Um, yeah, I mean, he's looked like Ivo Karlovic this week. His serve has been incredible. Um, the forehands look good. The backhand is undoubtedly improved you know he's, a lot of the matches he's played it's clear the opponents have gone in thinking I'm going to attack that backhand and they've definitely not got as much joy from it as they would have would have god it really has been a long week uh, would have uh, back in the day so um, that's back to back semi-finals from Kasper Ruud. he's never not reached the semi-finals at this tournament that's that's a pretty great record um doesn't have a good head-to-head -head against Andre Rublev, which I find interesting. I think four and one in Rublev's favour. So it's two interesting semi-finals, I think. Um, and I'm sure you'll touch upon this, but the doubles has been interesting. Three Brits 
in the field, three Brits in the semis, uh, no special Ks in the semis. Um, I'll leave you to cover that in more detail. Um, it's a hair wash day tomorrow. Um, and Elia, my Italian hairdresser, uh, gets very annoyed if I don't present a, uh, a clean canvas for him to work his magic on. <laughs> so I'd probably better get myself to bed uh, and uh, say I'll be on tomorrow, hopefully, after the semi-finals, and we can talk about how all my predictions were utter tosh. Bye. Right then, Matt, we don't need to cover anything to do with any of the matches or the players in the ATP finals, do we? Because Catherine's covered the lot. <laughs> and she's given us some fantastic lowdown there on all the sort of storylines and the players and so much has happened and really, really interesting to, to hear what she's seen. And it does, I mean, look, obviously she's referenced some of the conversations we've been having as the week's gone on, but it, it does tally with my perspective from afar in, in most cases. Yeah, definitely. Catherine has uh, pretty much said all I had to say. I was listening along thinking, yep, yeah, I was thinking I might say that on the podcast. I might <laughs> say that on the podcast. So thank you, Catherine. You've made tonight very easy for us, I think. Maybe we should start with something that sort of broke when Catherine was probably recording that voice note. And that was the super salty press conference of Stefanos Tsitsipas after his defeat to Andre Rublev tonight, which I must say I enjoyed and I do like some some sour grapes. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna criticize Sitsapas necessarily for doing it, you know, coming into a press conference so soon after a loss. I think, you know, we often like that because you do get real real thoughts. And yeah, he um he said that Andre Rublev won with the few tools that he has. But and he, and he said that shortly after running us through his vast mm. repertoire of tools <laughs> and how everybody could see how many he's got and unfortunately they didn't work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure he's wrong. I think that would be most people's analysis of Rublev, oh, really. Absolutely. And you just can't say that after you, you've just got doffed no, up. it just doesn't doesn't reflect that well on him, I suppose. And no. um, it, was a, it was a slightly strange match, wasn't it? Because... For the first half an hour, 45 minutes, it was a Sitsipas masterclass. I thought he was awesome, you know, getting his forehand into play, dominating. He just looked brilliant, I thought, to begin with. And Rublev, there didn't seem like there was much that he could do, but he had an amazing backhand passing shot up the line at the start of the second set, and that that seemed to inspire him, flip the match around. And then the second half of the match was just... The complete opposite. It was Rublev dominating with his forehand. And I've been really impressed with Rublev's resilience this week, you know, other than when he played Djokovic. But I think that's a slightly different case because a lot of the talk about Rublev, as, as Catherine mentioned, is that he lacks that belief a little bit, you know, in himself, to be honest. And I feel like there's, a, there's maybe a reason why he lacks that belief compared to Djokovic. But there shouldn't be that much reason why he lacks it compared to Sitsipas or even compared to Medvedev. You know, they've they've achieved more than him, but not not, you know, a huge amount more in the way that Djokovic has. And in both matches this week, Rublev against Medvedev and tonight against Sitsipas, 
has not mentally gone away. He's he's stuck to his game despite losing the first set in both both occasions and kept plugging away and eventually found his best tennis and come up with it when it mattered most. And that could be big for him because this was essentially a quarterfinal of a big event, which is sort of where his where his ceiling has been, certainly at slams. And he's he's broken through it today and let's see whether whether he can take it forward against Rude. But really good week for Rublev. Yeah, it feels like a big moment to me, or it certainly should be a big Mm. moment for him because it is a new barrier broken through. You've still got to capitalise on it. And actually, I was expecting to be saying something similar about Stefano Tsitsipas instead. That's the only thing. Um, Because Tsitsipas had the same kind of performance against Medvedev the other day. Absolutely brilliant dominating the match playing in a different way to what I've seen him play before in in terms of his ability to to bring variety and and utilize it in a way that is effective and yet still ended up with Medvedev serving for that match that should not have been happening fair play to Sitsabas for turning it around and ending up winning that match but this one he was dominating as well and I, I mean he was just absorbing Rublev's great big ground strokes and having his way with them with with confidence of his own and again the variety the, I think he came to the net about 37 times I think I heard uh, against Medvedev and he won 30 of the points he didn't come to the net anywhere near as much tonight but he did, kind of didn't need to because he was winning from the back of the court and it was to me it was two players playing pretty much their best tennis but in completely different parts of the match because Rublev suddenly just took over and that's the best I've ever seen him play. That he showed a level of conviction from the baseline that I haven't seen like that before, where he just is able to take the play away from a, from an opponent like Sitsipas. I didn't see that coming at all. And and I agree with you about the resilience that Catherine rightly points out how how hard I find him to watch when he when he starts smacking himself with the racket and all that sort of thing. And I, I take the point that. She doesn't think it comes from a, from an unpleasant place, um, attitude wise. It's it's a it's an insecurity. It's it's a vulnerability. I I just find it really difficult to watch wherever it comes from. But wow, he was good tonight, and and I am just genuinely pleased for him because I share the thought that I think he's a nice nice lad, and and uh, I don't want bad things for him. I want him to do well. Um, having seen that, I don't, I can't say I always enjoy watching him, but I enjoyed watching him tonight. I, that was spectacular, and I don't think of Rublev as spectacular and exciting that much. I find him relentless, but he showed another gear for a little while there tonight. Yeah, I completely agree. And as Catherine mentioned, he does have a good record against Kasper Ruud, albeit it's one of those head-to-heads where you kind of think, well, how much can we read into this? Because it's 4-1 to Rublev. Three of those wins were actually on clay. You know, he's actually dominated um, Rude on clay, but those were, you know, before Rude had really developed into the force that he is now. And they met at this tournament last year, and it was Kasper Rude who who won 7-6 in third. So I, th- I think we're in for another tight match there. I, I, I think they're very evenly matched both playing well uh so yeah it'll be interesting um from a Medvedev perspective should we talk about him I mean 
a weird week because he's been very close to winning all three matches. I think he's the first person ever to lose three matches in the group, 7-6 in the third. And he served for two of those at at 5-4 in the third. I don't know. It's just obviously this being the final tournament of the year for him, it sort of makes me reflect on his year a bit. And you can probably be way too simplistic and just say that the Australian Open final seemed to change everything. I just had a look at his record going into that final. He'd won 20 of his last 25 matches against top 10 players. He hasn't beaten a top 10 player since. And I just feel like he's maybe at a stage now where for so long players were having to adapt to him because he was different. You know, he's a six foot six guy who's kind of a counterpuncture. I've I've seen I've seen Gary Nathan, a brilliant tennis writer, describe him as a tangle of limbs, which I think is a very good description. And yet he's also really good at attacking and he was kind of deceptive. And I think players had struggled to figure him out a little bit. Well, Rublev's now won his last two against Medvedev. Sitsipas has now won his last two. And, and you mentioned the way Sitsipas played against Medvedev this time, coming forward, using his variety. It feels like something's clicked a bit for Sitsipas in how to play Medvedev. I think Philippousis, Mark Philippousis has helped him click because that, that felt very well thought through mm. from a different set of eyes. Sitsipas, I think, is very stubborn and... And so's his dad, I think, and they just would tend to do the same thing over and over, and that had a clear difference to it. Mm, absolutely. So it now feels like Medvedev needs to needs to maybe adapt again to these players who are who are starting starting to figure him out. You know that that's why we like rivalries because of the you know the ebbs and flows that they can have, and and just how much how much you've got to draw on when you when you go into matches between these players you know it's it's interesting but then of course you know there have been lots of circumstances factors in in Medvedev's season hernia operation being banned from Wimbledon that speech he gave after the Australian Open final that all perhaps paint a, a much broader picture and do do help to explain his results you know he's still he's still qualified for the year-end finals it's by no means been a disaster he he got to world number one but yeah as we go into next year it feels like Medvedev needs a little bit of a reset and yet I say that didn't think he was anywhere near his best this week and he still could have won all three matches he's looked out of sorts to me Uh, Mm. he doesn't have the same conviction about him And, and I think there's no way of knowing whether the events of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the subsequent action taken of Wimbledon banning Russian players and Belarusian players and and all that's come along with with those stories, whether that's impacted him, um, just don't don't know. But it's certainly certainly a possibility. Um, th- elsewhere, I, I I I just just running through a couple of these players. I mean, to, to be honest, I mean. I f- I couldn't really watch the match with Djokovic and Medvedev today. I just I just I'm, it was brilliant tennis, but I had it and I kind of had it on, but I just wasn't invested because it didn't mean anything to me. Uh, I knew Djokovic was through. It was interesting. There were some interesting elements to it. I do think Djokovic has looked sublime. I think Fritz Fritz is a really interesting watch 
because he's so loose, as, as Catherine was saying and, and quoting her dad about the Gustavo Kierden comparison, which physically I can really see that. They're so skinny and uh, gangly. Um, I can't see if Djokovic is fit and fresh enough tomorrow. I can't see him hurt Fritz really bothering him. I don't know what you think. I agree, but I do think that's quite a big if. Because right. Djokovic did not look good at the end of that match, the last hour today. He was, he was, you know, hunched over. He was just looked really hot and bothered. It was like a scene out of Forty Degrees at the Australian Open. You know, he had his top off and he was sort of trying to gasp for air. And I don't quite know how he won it, to be honest. You know, and perhaps, perhaps that's a sign that he will be okay tomorrow against Fritz because he looked really bad today physically and yet he still managed to beat Medvedev but it it was it was tough to imagine a less ideal match before the semi-final you know he's dragged into this one with Medvedev three hours he suddenly got an escape route from this hellhole when he lost his serve at four all in the third and Medvedev was about to to serve it out and I thought okay well that's going to be it and then he broke back and it just just sort of shows how he's just built differently you know to everyone just, else i think just wired yeah there are certain players i think nadal's the same i mean remember murray and federer going at it when murray didn't need to to win the final round robin match in shanghai all those years ago and ended up exhausting himself for the next match um and he won beat federer but he'd lost the semi-final i mean i i don't i don't have an, a view on i i think it's great that djokovic has that determination inside him that makes him want to win that match regardless um even if it is silly to try and do it (laughs) and I think we have spoken in the past about Djokovic not tanking but maybe not giving his all in in some matches but I can't think of an example where he'd have done that in this position where he knows he's got another match left in the tournament. I think momentum's a big thing and keeping that winning feeling. And if he'd lost today, would that have affected his mindset tomorrow? So I just think, you know, for him, it's like, you know, just try and win every match while I'm still in the tournament. And I agree. He's been, he's been on a different level to everyone else, to be honest, this tournament with his tennis so far, um, particularly in the first two matches. And, I don't want to draw too much of a connection because he's been playing brilliant tennis most of the year, really, certainly in the last last few times we've seen him. But I think it's also pretty significant that this week he's got the news that he can play in Australia next year. It feels like a weight's been lifted off his shoulders, you know, with his... Um, he's allowed to apply for a new visa and that will likely be accepted and he can play in Australia and you know we all know that feeling of a weight being lifted off your shoulders not one like this but <laughs> um i just think he's he's in a really good place and as uh, as catherine said he's got his family there i think it was the first time they'd watched a full match of his and he he used the word harmony to describe what having them there brings to him and that's been missing from djokovic all year hasn't it it's it's not been a balanced year and yet right now sort of everything's coming together and um yeah I think I think he's in a really really good place I will say I do think the reaction to that news that he can play in Australia has been a bit weird it feels like a lot of people have forgotten that Djokovic brought that on himself like 
it's great. I want to see Djokovic at the Australian Open. And, you know, he was led on by Tennis Australia. It was it doubtless all became quite political as well. But, you know, there was a very simple solution that he didn't go to the, the Australian Open and he didn't put a jolly Instagram post on that, that he was going. So I don't really see it as a kind of personal triumph. Like, I think it's been framed that way quite a lot. I just see it as the sort of end of quite a sorry saga, really, for him, for tennis. Um, but no doubt one that he's... You know, he, he's absolutely delighted by the outcome, for sure. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I would personally say I think it's the right outcome at the right time, mm. personally. I also think the right thing happened back then, and he wasn't allowed to play because, um, you know, the, it was totally understandable to me that that decision was taken. But I think also it is the right time now to, to, to carry on and let him let him go about his business the way everybody else can personally um the fact is now that um we have a lineup of Djokovic Fritz and Rude against Rublev the absence of Felix Auger-Aliassime from that lineup I think is something that um some people will be surprised about I think I am a bit I'm a bit surprised about it given the indoor form he's shown of late what what's your view of of his tournament I thought he would go through yeah I thought Fritz and Ogeliasim would go through that group so to me the probably the most disappointing loss is is the one that we talked about the other day when he just didn't really show up against Kasparud in the first match I think that's probably been the one that ended up making making a real difference because he beat Rafael Nadal and I think that will be pretty big for him just in terms of you know beating an idol and the next time he plays Nadal he'll he'll maybe you know take some of what he what he did this week in, into that match so that was a positive he fought really well against Taylor Fritz he dragged that into a third set but then his game became really ragged in that in that third set which I thought was bound to go to a deciding set tie break like we've had a lot this week and his his game just sort of collapsed on him a little bit so look it's his first appearance in these finals we spoke the other day about how you know it's a different format it's maybe a little bit intimidating to be in that environment for the first time and I still think there's been a progression over the last few months but you know especially putting that finals record um, you know that bad finals record that he had to bed I think I think that's important his season's not done. He's he's still going on to the Davis Cup for for Canada, and you know we've seen that he thrived in the ATP Cup before. Uh, that could be a big lift for him to end the season on if if him and Shapovalov can do some damage there. But generally, I was I was a little bit disappointed given the form that he came in on. I I thought he would he would make the semi-finals, but then Kasper Ruud's played better than than I thought he would as well. How about you? Yeah, I I would agree. I would agree with you. I think um, I I just this this something about Australia. Say my share Catherine's view. There's that the methodical nature of his tennis um, makes me struggle to get comp- to, that excited about watching him. But I do find him effective at times, and and sometimes very watchable when he's really. Nailing that forehand mm, and, and, and 
and and, and everything's reliable but it doesn't I, I, there's a precariousness about how reliable it is i actually think he's held it together incredibly well the past few weeks maybe that is what is going to become the new norm i still don't feel it is um, i think we will get get out into outdoor tournaments and other elements will come into play wind and and all the rest of it um but it's all there for him to prove me wrong because physically he's an incredible athlete his attitude is first class um but i still think there's loads to prove and it was the first time i've heard this analysis i think it was tim Hemman on on amazon prime just comparing his backhand to taylor fritz's and mm. how solid Fritz's is and how reliable and I think the word he used to describe Ojalia seems was that it's a little bit flicky and mm. I think just before he makes contact with the ball he his, his wrists sort of yeah flick and it does mean that it's liable to maybe a shank or a mishit and I thought we saw that contrast really well with with Fritz this week. So I think we're going to end up with a Djokovic Rublev final what do you think? Are you going rude? I think I am going rude. Okay. It's so easy to overlook <laughs> Kasper Ruud. Um, the only thing I would say is he is in that place of having maybe lost a little bit of his momentum because he qualified very early. I think he was through on Tuesday, wasn't he? I think he'd already won two matches by then. He then lost to Nadal and wasn't wasn't brilliant in that match. I didn't think he was awful, to be honest, but he, he just didn't quite have the same urgency, maybe. But um, I think he's been really good. And as, as Catherine said, he's been serving so well. And it feels like there's more to come from him. Like, again, Hemman was saying that his his forehand, he can he can hit it harder than he does. And it, it almost feel like maybe Kasparu does have a couple of gears left to improve and keep getting better. And yeah, I, I think given his, given his year, you know, he's played bigger matches than Rublev. I just maybe think that he might rise to that occasion. So, but it's, it feels very, very close. Mm. I realise uh, I've gone from completely writing Rublev off in this <laughs> tournament to suddenly having him in the final, but there we are. <laughs> Shows how unsure of myself I really am. <laughs> um, just just a quick note on, on Nadal. He he finally ended his four-match losing streak when he beat Rude again in a match that didn't, strictly speaking, mean anything. But looking at Nadal afterwards and hearing him talk, it meant something to him. And watching him play, he he needed something to hold on to, I think, going into this off-season. Definitely. And it's an off-season where he's playing Casper Ruud about 100 times in, uh, <laughs> <laughs> in South America. They're doing an exhibition tour, aren't they? Um, gosh, yeah. I mean, you put out a, a tweet about Rafa Nadal, didn't you? Which... Which got some traction, should we say. <laughs> Just about 500 replies. <laughs> what did I say? I, I said, I said, and I stand by it, uh, do you see Rafael Nadal returning to Grand Slam contending form? Mm. Well, I think that's a fair question. Yes, I do. And I think my answer is yes. And I think... As we found out, the answer of lots of people on the internet is yes. <laughs> <laughs> and lots of people who were who were damning me because I dared to ask a stupid question. 
Mm. which I don't think was a stupid question at all. You know, the bloke has had really tough injuries this year. He has lost four matches in a row. Yes, people, he doesn't lose four matches in a row. He he played a Grand Slam tournament at the US Open and he looked nothing like himself. Now, of course, I remember that he won the Australian Open and the French Open. Of course, I remember that he had this horrible build-up into both of them and looked like he might even retire from the sport. And therefore, he should never be questioned, is the view. Folks, one day he's going to retire from the sports. One day he's not going to be able to conquer all and win everything just because he did before. So I'm asking the question, (laughs) is it now? Now, I conclude, no, it isn't now. I've seen enough. I have confidence that he will be able to contend again. But it is a perfectly fair question. David is not responsible for the death of Twitter, despite... uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> despite how he may have felt after about five seconds after posting posting that question. Um, I agree. I think the thing with Nadal is he's done so many extraordinary things that we people can start to think that that's normal. And I think what he's doing now is probably more normal. You know, struggling. He's 36. His, his body has kept breaking down. It's a struggle for him. But... <laughs> Because he's done those extraordinary things, you can't rule him out from doing those again. And personally, I think we'll know a lot more about Nadal's future after Roland Garros next year. You know, it Mm. it feels like Nadal plays a slightly different cycle to everyone else. You know, you just, you can't rule him out from the clay court season above anything. And I'm certainly not going to say that he'll never be a contender at Roland Garros again when he's won it 14 times. So... I definitely think he will be, but I do agree that it does feel a little bit fragile at the moment because, you know, his his body's been letting him down. But there were some encouraging signs this week. You know, it's been it's been the serve where it's really been notable, I think, how how much he was struggling with the ab issue. And I think he served sixteen aces against Rude, the most he's ever hit in two sets. So I was I was really encouraged by that for Nadal. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So Calm down, Nadal fans. Everything's all right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Carlos Alcaraz got uh, his year-end number one trophy. It's hard to believe, really, that he's not here, isn't it? In a way, you almost forget, oh, yeah, Carlos Alcaraz is the world number one for the year. (laughs) Amazing. And I saw Holger Rune on Instagram. As we know, he likes an Instagram post. He's been in Turin, I think, think doing a lot of the hitting, practicing with a lot of players because he was... He was the first alternate and he left Turin and his goodbye post was hashtag see you next year, hashtag number one. Oh. Mm. That man is <laughs> not short of self-confidence. Nothing like believing in yourself, is there? Yeah, so, we don't need to have to the Andre Rublev conversation about Holger Rune, do we? No, no, I think I think we're fairly safe on that ground. Um, okay, well, I can't wait to see Holger Rune next year and other players trying to take him down. The whole thing is just going to be fascinating to watch. Um, in the doubles, we have a lineup of Nikola Mektic and Mate Pavic against Heliovara and Glasspool, Lloyd Glasspool, who, who are a very interesting partnership and there's such different characters. Heliovara from Finland and uh, Lloyd Glasspool from Redditch, just down the road from me. Um, and, and they couldn't sound and 
kind of convey themselves more differently. But what a team they've become. And they've got themselves to the semi-final of this tournament and play the Croatian pair, which uh, the, the whole thing went right down to, to the last match of the doubles today with Nick Kyrgios and Tanasi Kakanakis having a chance to get into the semis uh, at the expense of Wesley Kulhoff and uh, Neil Skupski, Neil but they had to beat Mektic and Pavic to do so. And let's just say Mektic and Pavic were not going to let them do that easily uh, and lightly, not after all the shenanigans that took place in Australia where apparently there was a bit of a locker room kerfuffle after the match, so it, irritated by the Australian pair that they were. Gosh, yes, I'd forgotten about that. You're right. And and that was that was quite early on in the tournament, I think, in Australia. And that was... That was when Kyrgios and Kokonakis suddenly, I think it felt like, oh, okay, they could be a really strong team. They mm. could maybe go on and win this. And I think just for double specialists like Mektic and Pavic, it must be so satisfying to beat Kyrgios and, and Kokonakis. Kyrgios, who I think only showed up in Turin the day before the tournament started. You know, if he'd if he'd rocked up and gone all the way to the doubles title, I imagine he would have been completely unbearable for the double specialist so I think I think they were pretty pleased about that and I felt like uh, Pavic was maybe a little bit on the Tsitsipas spectrum of of saltiness just talking about the fact that Kokonakis and Kyrgios were pretty much all serve in that match and that it was just one or two moments and in the end it was the serve that that let them down because Kokonakis double faulted in the in the first mm. set tie break and that was kind of the key moment so um yeah, I think a really satisfying win for the Croatians. Uh, Kulhofen and Skubski will play Ram and Salisbury. So as Catherine was mentioning, three British players in the last uh, four of the doubles competition, which storyline-wise has been fantastic to have the two Australian players, Kyrgios and Kakanakis, to have some great doubles teams, to have three British players from our perspective. But the actual tennis has been, to my eye, a, a tough watch because of how serve-dominated it has been. And I assume that's because this court is lively, the balls are lively, and nobody can get the blooming serves back. Yeah, no, I agree. And there's a little bit of altitude in Turin as well, isn't there? Nothing like some of the events in South America or or even Madrid. But even so, I think that does quicken up the conditions. And yeah, as you said, the court, the balls... and. Personally, I I think that's a bit of a problem in men's doubles anyway. I think it is extremely serve-dominated. And if you can't get the return back past past the volleyer at the net, the average rally length is one or two shots. And personally, I don't find that a particularly thrilling watch. I much prefer women's doubles. I much prefer mixed doubles. I think it's a big criticism of the event because I think London was maybe too slow sometimes, that court, and end of the season when everyone's tired and no one can finish off a point, it's maybe not the conditions you want. Here they've quickened it up. I think that's probably a good thing, and it, it has led to some good matches, but maybe maybe it doesn't always help in the doubles. The sweet spot generally is so hard to find, yeah. isn't it, for court speed, with the balls, everything else, the altitude, trying to get the right speed so that it's not dead and it's not impossible to hit winners and and not to have something so quick that you only have to hit the ball and it's like a trampoline effect and the ball's in the 
in the seats before anybody can get a racket on it every time, no matter how good or bad the serve is. Trying to find that that middle ground is really... I don't know how they do it. I no, really don't. No, and generally, I think we want variety. And, mm. you know, we want we want there to be some difference between these tournaments. So I'm certainly not complaining about the speed of the court, but it, it has led, even even in the singles, to maybe some very serve-dominated matches. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. So that's the ATP finals that continues and we'll have another show tomorrow after the semis and another one after the final. There have been some news items over the last week that we'll run you through. The first of those is that Wimbledon have announced a change to their white clothing rule, meaning that female tennis players will be permitted to wear dark-coloured undershorts. Momentum and clamour had been really building for, for this move over the last few months, Catherine was quoted in the headline of a big Telegraph Women's Sport article during Wimbledon this year. That headline read, Imagine being forced to wear white on your period. Women in tennis question Wimbledon rules. The intro to the article read like this, Ask Catherine Whitaker whether Wimbledon's strict all-white dress code has outlived its time and the tennis broadcaster does not hold back in her response. I would like to see it change, she says. If they had a clothing policy that affected men in the way that it does women, I don't think that particular tradition would last. I can't imagine going into the biggest day of my life with my period and being forced to wear white. Now, yesterday... Wimbledon's chief executive, Sally Bolton, said, 
I'm pleased to confirm that following consultation with players and representatives of several stakeholder groups, the Committee of Management has taken the decision to update the white clothing rule at Wimbledon. This means that from next year, women and girls competing at the championships will have the option of wearing coloured undershorts if they choose. It is our hope that this rule adjustment will help players focus purely on their performance by relieving a potential source of anxiety. About time is my immediate reaction, but also good for them, that they have listened that they're not the only ones. There are several football clubs that have recently brought in this change to the rules and and actually th- listened and thought about how this this sport is is different for women and um, in particularly at Wimbledon where they had this all white rule. And Catherine often brought my attention to this issue that I had not necessarily thought about before. And that's typical of so many, and that's typical of a a society in which the rules are made by men, and Wimbledon being an example of that. But we got there, and Catherine maybe was part of that conversation, or certainly was part of that conversation, and maybe part of the reason that this this has changed. Yeah, you've said it all. Um, it's it's progress at last. Um, proud of Catherine for playing a big part in that I think and because I think media coverage and there was a demonstration I think on site last year wasn't there has really helped to push it to the forefront of the agenda because you know some players maybe find it uncomfortable to speak about and I think this is to that this is going to help them as as the statement says so I think it's it's good news um, that at last this is happening. Absolutely. A couple of other bits of news that have come out over the last uh, few days. Laura Robson has become the tournament director of the Rothsay Open in Nottingham shortly before Wimbledon. She's She's been at a, a number of tournaments over the last 18 months. I, I remember seeing her in the final year that I worked Queen. She was actually shadowing the tournament director that year to, to learn how the job is done, the, the various parts of it. I mean, I've I've worked with uh, Laura Lotters in broadcasting over the last couple of years. Very impressed with her just generally. I think she's a really smart person and and sharp and you know doesn't pull up punches, tells you what she thinks and uh, and is really interesting to listen to. So I, I suspect she's she's going to do a really good job at this. And the thing is she's she's so in touch with the sport still. She knows loads of players. She's the she's the same age as many of them. She's younger than a lot of them, but I think she gets it from a player's perspective. I mean, look, there are a lot of other perspectives that one has to consider as well. Her experience in the media will be helpful. There's a lot of things to consider with sponsors and all the very, you know, it's a massive job and I think it's probably been an eye-opener for her, but I think she'll be good at it. She's also been appointed to the International Player Relations Team at Wimbledon. And uh, Jamie Delgado, former coach of Andy Murray, has taken up a similar role there as well. So good luck to to Laura and to Jamie, um, both people I, I have a lot of time for. Some sad news to impart um, with the news over the last uh, couple of days that Rex Bellamy, the former tennis correspondent of The Times, died on Thursday, aged 94. 
Richard Evans, a another writer, one who I have enormous respect for, said that Rex was charming and courteous and a great colleague who wrote incomparably on tennis through the 1960s to the 1980s. And we've referenced his work, Rex Bellamy's work, a lot on Tennis Relived over the last year or so, haven't we, Matt? I mean, he's somebody I've known about for a long time, read his stuff and just frankly drooled over his turn of phrase and his imagination and his way of conveying the sport and painting pictures with what he wrote. I never got to meet him, but uh, yeah, it's really sad news, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, his his work lives on in the Wimbledon Library. I would I would urge everyone to read the words of Rex Bellamy because he he brought the sport to life. He really did. Yeah, well, we will continue Tennis Relived in 2023 and beyond and uh, look forward to telling you about the things we find on the, uh, along the way. So, Matt, I think that draws this particular edition of the Tennis Podcast to a close. We will be back again tomorrow night. Just time for us to tell you about our episode mascot today, which is Cooper, owned by Rob Becker. 14-year-old Beagle is Cooper, adopted in New York City in 2010, then moved with the family to Milan, Italy in 2014, with a brief stint in Geneva. My word, this this dog's well-traveled. And now living with us in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, we have a picture here of Cooper staring up with the most beautiful eyes at the camera. And I'm going to send it immediately to Catherine, because I think it'll improve her day. Um, so thank you so much to Rob for sending in that picture of Cooper and for also making Cooper a mascot for the tennis podcast, which is one of our friends, uh, benefits, which, uh, will be relaunching on December the 8th. That's when, uh, you can get your opportunity to have your pet as a mascot for the tennis podcast in 2023. Thank you also to Stephen Lewis from Adelaide for introducing this particular edition of the tennis podcast. Another option for you uh, if you want to become a friend of the show and uh, friends get access to all the bonus shows that we do over the course of the year. Tennis Relived, Q&As with us, uh, Grand Slam reviews with voice note contributions from all our favourite people uh, on the tennis circuit. Um, but yes, thank you so much to all of you that have become friends so far. We will save shout outs for tomorrow night when Catherine is back. Uh, but just time to say uh, thanks as well to our own mascots Carter for Catherine, Darwin for me, Matt's got the dearly departed Gerald, of course. Uh, Billie Jean the Dog is sponsored by Billie Jean King and Alana Kloss. Chris Albert Lee and Carl Weingartner are our executive producers and top blokes. And Matt, I think, as the clock just ticks on to midnight here in the UK, it's time to go to bed. Good night. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.